Good evening, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast, where we bring you the best of horror and suspense old-time radio shows, as well as original stories. I'm your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd, again thanking everyone for the outpouring of support. As of now, our Facebook page has over 500 followers and is still growing which is insane. So thanks to to you all. Tonight's episode is entitled Things That Go Bump in the Night. So without further ado, this is Terror Radio. Tonight's featured programs are The Mysterious Traveler and Escape. The Mysterious Traveler ran from December 5th, 1943 to September 16th, 1952 on the Mutual Broadcasting System. It was written and directed by Robert Arthur and David Cogan, and each week was narrated by novelist and radio actor Maurice Tarplin. Mysterious Traveler was also adapted into magazines as well as comic books. The magazine ran for five issues between 1951 and 1952, and the comic books, volume one with 13 issues, ran from August 56 to June 1959 and Volume 2 October 1985 through December 1985 with two issues. Tonight's radio play Behind the Locked Door was first broadcasted on November 6, 1951 and it was one of the most requested episodes of Mysterious Traveler. So you know the drill. Sit back Turn down the lights, and let's listen to Behind the Locked Door. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Mysterious Travel. Written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Coulton. And starring two of radio's foremost personalities, Lyle Sudrow and Robert Dunley, in Behind the Locked Door. This is a mysterious traveler inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip. And it will thrill you a little and kill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can, as I bring you the strange and chilling stories so many of you have asked to hear again. I call it Behind the Locked Door. Our story begins in the beautiful mountain region of Lake Mead, Arizona. A convertible car is speeding along a deserted road which winds through the mountains. The car slows down and turns into a dirt road. A few minutes later, it comes to a stop before a small mountain lodge. Kathy Evans, an attractive girl in her early 20s, gets out of the car, runs up the steps of the lodge to the front door. She knocks impatiently, looking about anxiously. Uh, 
Yes? Martin. Kathy. I thought I'd find you here. Aren't you going to ask me? Go away, Kathy. Martin, what's wrong? Go away. Go away. Not until I find out what this is all about. Let me in. Are you alone? Alone? Yes. Darling, look at yourself. You haven't shaved in days. Martin, those deep gashes on your face. How did you get them? It doesn't matter. Darling, you must have lost a great deal of blood. And your fever. Yes, I know. Is it true about Professor Stevens? Yes. Why did you leave town so suddenly last night? The authorities are looking for you. Do they know I'm here? No. How could they? It was intuition that brought me here. They must have found me. Martin, nothing makes sense. You returned from an expedition last night alone, unexpected. You stay in town one hour and then vanish. Not even phoning me. It's best that way. Believe me, Kathy. You've got to tell me everything that's happened. I can't, Kathy. I can't. I'm your fiancé. I've got a right to know. Kathy, go away, please. I won't go away until you tell me what's happened. If I do, then will you go? Yes. I... I don't know where to begin. I suppose if you can say it had a beginning, it was that day a little over two weeks ago in Professor Stevens' office. Come in, Martin. Come in. Have a seat. Thank you, Professor. Martin... How would you like to go exploring with me for, say, ten days, two weeks at the outside? Exploring where? The Vermilion Cliffs along the Colorado River. I found some wonderful Aztec pieces there last summer. One large cave I stumbled on proved to be a veritable treasure trove. Yes, yes, I've seen those Aztec pieces in the University Museum. Now, the Vermilion Cliffs still remain largely unexplored. I'm sure that we could turn up many more objects of interest. (laughs) It certainly sounds intriguing, the... Only reason I hesitate, Professor, is because of Kathy. I'm sure she'd give you a two-week leave of absence. (laughs) Yes, I suppose so. How many of us would go? Well, it would just be you, myself, and an Indian guide. And three burrows. I find that the fewer there are on expedition, the better. Mm -hmm. When would we leave? Well, what about the day after tomorrow? All right, Professor, I'm with you. These are the Vermilion Cliffs, Professor. Yes. An awe-inspiring sight, I think. Well, they're as breathtaking as the Grand Canyon itself. I had no idea they towered so high. Yes, they make you realize just how insignificant man really is. Yeah. Now, this region is so desolate, Martin, that it's all but unexplored. That's why I'm drawn to it time and time again. Yes, I can understand that. It represents the challenge of the unknown. <laughs> Careful, Martin. You'll get the exploring bug. Oh, I've already been bitten, Professor. Well, you're going to be an explorer and an archaeologist. I'll have to start teaching you the fundamentals of the profession. Stan, it seems like a good spot. We'll camp here for the night. 
shoe. Well, it certainly is hot, Professor. Exploring isn't as easy as I thought. Yeah. All right, Professor, what is it? For 20 minutes now, you've been sitting on that rock staring at that cliff. Yeah. Note the boulders strewn over the face of that cliff. What about them? Well, that's a very peculiar landslide. If you carefully study the formation of it... What's peculiar about it? Many of the rocks look as though they'd been placed there by human hands. <laughs> but why and by whom? Well, one of the ancient Aztec forms of punishment was to steal a person in a cave by means of a landslide or just piling heavy rocks in front of the mouth of a cave. That landslide, there must be hundreds of tons of rock there. Yes. Well, fortunately, we're prepared for it. Is that why you brought the dynamite along? Yes. <laughs> Probably all we'll find will be a skeleton. In that case, it'll have been a waste of dynamite. However, we'll chance it. Oh, Sam. What do you want? Get the case of dynamite, Sam. I'm going to blast that landslide. Professor. That's a leave it. Same way it be. Why? Evil spirit sleep in cave. Better not wake him up. <laughs> You really believe that, Martin? I wouldn't laugh. Sam may be uneducated, but he senses things that you and I can't even begin to comprehend. Well, now, wait a minute. You mean you believe what he said about evil being asleep in that cave? I wouldn't say that I believe it. But nevertheless, I respect Sam's opinion. Sam, I still want to blast that landslide. Hey. Get dynamite. Keep your head down, Martin. When I set that dynamite off, there are going to be a great many rocks flying around. Don't worry, Professor. I've got cover. Sam, you ready? Yes, Professor. All right. Here goes. <laughs> Get your head down. All right. It's safe now. Professor, I think you did it. I can see a small opening. It looks like a mouth of a cave. Yes, it is. Sam, let me have one of the flashlights. Martin, you take the other. Uh, I'll lead the way in. Just as you say, Professor. It doesn't seem too bad in here. Yes, it's all right. Yeah, what's that noise? It's just rats scurrying around. Oh. Certainly a huge cavern. Look at that ceiling. Must be 200 feet high. Look at the bats up there. Yes, huge ones. I have a feeling that this cavern and others extend for miles underground. Yeah, I... Professor, look. Skeleton. Yes. There's, there's another one over there. Yes. Let's see what else there is. Wagon train. What? Good Lord. Sam's right. It's a wagon train. A wagon train? Yes. But there are at least 30 or 40 wagons in this cavern. Look. Skeletons of horses. Yes. Here's a skeleton with an arrow beside it. Let me see it. Here's to be a Navajo arrow. What do you think, Sam? Navajo. 
professor. This, this wagon train, what's it all mean? Well, many years ago, this wagon train was attacked by Indians. Wagon train retreated into this cavern, hoping to save themselves that way. And then the Indians caused a landslide, sealing them in. Huh? Yeah. Poor devils. Look, notice that old gun lying there. Yeah. The flintlock seems to suggest that this wagon train must be at least a hundred years old. Yeah, probably headed for the California gold rush of 1848. Yeah. Well, we'll come back tomorrow and search this wagon train thoroughly. I'm sure we'll find many things of great interest. The next morning, after an early breakfast, Sam and I followed Professor Stevens back into the cabin. We spent the morning investigating the trunks and boxes we found on the wagons. And among the moldy clothing and 101 household articles, we found faded letters and newspapers which showed the wagon train had crossed the Mississippi in the summer of 1849, headed west for California and gold. We finished rummaging among the effects of the wagons. And the professor suggested we explore the cavern. We followed him from one cavern to another, each varying in size. Now and then the professor would stop to mark our trail, for the caverns were honeycombed with countless passageways. How far do you think we've come, Professor? I should say we're about a mile from the wagon train. Huh? We'll go back a few more minutes. We'll go back now. This place evil. Now, Sam, if there are ghosts here, there's only the ghosts of the people in the wagon train. They wouldn't harm us. I tell you, evil. Feel it. All around. We'll go back. We'll go just a little further and turn back. Yeah, Professor, wait a minute. What is it, Martin? Oh, I think I hear running water. Yes, you're right. Come along. We seem to be getting closer. Yes, yes. Evil all around us. Can't be much further. Well, there it is. There. It's a small river. <laughs> Look how swiftly it's flowing. Yes. It probably flows for miles underground and it empties into the Colorado River. I say, Professor, here along the bank, there's a tremendous pile of fish bones. Yes, so there is. What? Well, there are even more on the other side of the river. Mm. What do these huge piles of fish bones mean? It's very strange. Well, how do you account for it? I'm afraid that at the moment I can't. Sam, you any ideas about it? Evil all around us. I feel him strong. Professor, he's trembling. Sam, there's nothing to be afraid of. Look, I'll shine my flashlight around, see? We've been watched. Watched? What are you talking about? One stay here. I thought, Sam, come back. You haven't even got a flashlight. Sam! Come on, Mark. We've got to catch him. Sam! Wait for us. I can still hear his footsteps. We've got to catch him. In the room, soft, a serious injury running in the dark like that. Sam! Wait for us. Professor, it's Sam. Screamer. This way. That fool's probably broken his leg. Oh, no, it sounds more like a fight. I don't know. He stopped. Sam, where are you? Keep shut. 
shining a flashlight around. Can't be much further. Sam! There he is. Yes. He's just, just sitting against that boulder. His head down. Sam. Give me a hand with him. God, Lord. sealed into this mountain by the Indians. What would have been the first thing they'd have done? Try to dig their way out. Exactly. They start digging and find there are a hundred ton boulders blocking the entrance and they have no dynamite. They're forced to give up. Yes. They spend days looking for another way out. Fail to find one. The day comes when all their food is gone. Starvation sets in. All right, all right. Then that would mean they would all die. Not necessarily. The strongest of them stumble along in the darkness and find the underground river. They catch an abundance of fish and are able to survive. The huge fishbone piles along the river. Right. The river was an everlasting supply of food. They continue to live by the river in the dark. Some probably went insane, died. Others adjusted themselves to their new environment. Professor, you... You think those... handful of survivors had descendants who are alive today inside this mountain? Yes, Martin. And it was one of them who clawed sand to death. What can those descendants be like? Being born and, and, and living in darkness? I can only guess. I should imagine they'd be blind or near to it. But their other senses would be remarkably developed. Their physical appearance. I don't know. It's not like a nightmare. A nightmare you can't awaken from. What, what's to prevent them from attacking us? Flashlights, for one thing. I'm sure light frightens them, just as fire frightens animals. Fortunately, I have a revolver. Well, we better move on. Wait a minute. What about Sam? Yes. Nothing we can do for him now. Come along, Martin. We must find the trail I marked so that we can get out of here. Uh, seems we've been searching days for the markings you left. Yes. Actually, it's been ten hours. Uh, listen, what? The river. Yes. Yeah. Come along. Yeah. Once we reach the river, we'll be able to pick up the trail I'm on. We're getting closer. Yes. There it is. Here we are. Look, Martin, there's my marking on the passageway. We found the trail. Yes. Martin, 2 a.m. We'd better rest for a few hours. We're both too exhausted to go on right now. One of us stand guard, and the other sleeps. 
right. I'll set up the first oven. Thank you, Martin. Keep the flashlight on. Don't worry. I will. In a matter of minutes, the professor fell asleep. And I sat on guard, flashing my light slowly around the huge cabin. I looked at my watch, and the seconds seemed like minutes, and the minutes like hours. My eyes grew heavy, and I finally dozed off. Suddenly, I awakened in the darkness to hear the professor screaming. Help me! Help me! Turn on the flashlight! I couldn't find it. And suddenly, they were shot. I could see the professor struggling with a huge, dark figure. And suddenly, all was quiet. Except for the professor's moans. As I crawled toward him, in the darkness, my hand struck the flashlight. I turned it on, and there was the professor. Martin, I think I'm wounded. You're bleeding badly. Let me stand you. Wounds. Leave at once. At once. But what about you? Professor? Professor! I felt his heart, but there was no beat. I staggered to my feet, shined my flashlight around until I found the professor's markings. I stumbled wearily along the marked passageway, trying not to remember my last glimpse of the professor's face. I hadn't gone more than a hundred yards when suddenly my flashlight flickered and went out. As I stood alone in the darkness, rats scampering past, I fought to keep from screaming. The darkness seemed to become heavier and more oppressive with each passing moment, and I had the feeling something was silently approaching. I backed up against the passage wall and waited, my eyes straining in the darkness, and then suddenly I was leaped upon by a wild fury. I threw my arms up and raised them across my face and neck. Again and again, the darkness savage was not aside, and I could feel the blood streaming down my face and neck. And then suddenly the deathly clawing ceased as my attacker turned to ward off something in the dark. As I sank to my knees, I was dimly aware of a fierce fight taking place, and then consciousness left Later. How much later, I have no way of knowing. I became aware of a heavy, calloused hand washing my face and neck with water. I winced in pain as the water flowed into the deep cuts, and then suddenly I remembered all. And remembering all, became aware of the calloused hand washing my face and the presence of someone beside me in the darkness. Oh. Who are you? For a moment, the hand hesitated, then resumed washing the neck. Well, can't you speak? Say something! The noise came from its throat that was more of that of an animal than a human being. If I could only see you. Do you have a name? It spoke. 
seemed to repeat the word name, though I couldn't be sure. And faint from the loss of blood, I closed my eyes and fell asleep. When I awoke, my face and neck felt stiff and painful. It seemed to sense I was awake, for as I opened my eyes and stared into the darkness, it came to my side. Can't you understand anything at all? Don't my words make any sense to you? Why did you save my life? My hand brushed against its hand. And I could feel the sharp, claw-like fingers on it. I reached out in the darkness as I touched its face. It bit my hand. <laughs> I tried to get to my feet, but... It placed a strong hand on my shoulder and held me down. At that moment, I realized that not only was it my savior, but my jailer as well. I lost all track of time. Now and then, it would leave me. And I would cautiously get to my feet to steal off, but no sooner had I taken more than a few steps than it would be there at my side, forcing me to return to the bank of the river. I spent my every waking moment trying to think of a way to escape. Then, when my despair was greatest, an idea came to me. The professor had said that the underground river I lay beside emptied into the Colorado River. Though the odds were a hundred to one against my surviving, I knew it was the only possible way of escape. Slowly, I crawled a few remaining feet to the edge of the river and, leaning over, started to wash my face. I could sense that it was watching me. I leaned forward a few inches more and fell into the river. As I came up for air in the swift flowing water, I heard a splash beside me. A moment later, I felt its arms around me. The current swept us along with breathtaking speed, and as we clung to each other, I discovered that it couldn't swim. For what seemed hours, the river swept us along in the darkness, and I felt myself losing consciousness as I attempted to keep the two of us above water. When, when I regained consciousness, Kathy, we were both lying on a sandbar in the Colorado River, and the sun was beating down on us. Darling, you're delirious from your wounds. You need a doctor. <laughs> I wish. I wish it were simple as all that. You're feverish. You need care. No. Go away, Kathy. Go away. How can I? Leaving you alone like this? Don't you understand? I'm not alone. She's here. She's here? Yes. <laughs> Didn't I tell you? It turned out to be a she. You're out of your mind. You don't know what you're saying. I first saw her that first time. Lying unconscious on that sandbar, my first instinct was to leave her there. But how could I? She had saved my life in the cavern and then jumped into the river when she thought I was drowning, even though she couldn't swim herself. Martin, I want you to get a grip on yourself. Just as I was dependent on her in the dark, she's dependent on me in the light. She's blind, 
She can't speak yet. She... Stop talking like that. <laughs> you can't believe it's true, can you, Kathy? Neither could I at first. What are you staring at? Huh? Is there anyone in that bedroom? <laughs> well, I'll soon find out. Why is the door locked? She's in there. Martin, you're sick. You don't know what you're saying. <laughs> I'll prove to you there's no one in that room. It's just your imagination. Give me the key to the door. Kathy, Kathy, Give it to me. Thank you. Perhaps when you see the room is empty, you'll be willing to return to town for medical treatment. There. I told you. This is the mysterious traveler again. Did you enjoy our trip? What's that, madam? You want a description of what Kathy saw when she opened that bedroom door? Well, you might ask Kathy. But the only trouble is, the poor girl gets hysterical when you question her about the occupant of that bedroom. I suggest you write a letter to the Museum of Horrors for a full description. They consider the woman of the mountain as their star exhibit. Because when she... Oh, you'll have to get off here. I'm sorry. I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at this same time. You have just heard The Mysterious Traveler. You may now enjoy other exciting adventures of The Mysterious Traveler in the current issue of The Mysterious Traveler magazine. In our cast, Lyle Sudrow, Ann Shepard, and Robert Donnelly. With Maurice Traveler in the title role. Bill Tonkin speaking, this program came to you from New York. Mutual's ace commentator Cecil Brown, currently on a three-month fact-finding tour of the world, heads for the Orient on the last lap of his history-making trip. In these last weeks, Mr. Brown will bring you on the on-the-scene reports from such tinderbox areas as India, Hong Kong, Hawaii, Japan, and Honolulu. You won't want to miss any of the eyewitness accounts by this able commentator of the latest happenings in these headline-making spots of the world. Be sure to listen to the news reports of Cecil Brown over most of these stations. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. You know, every time I listen to that broadcast, I try to envision what the creature would look like. And the only person I could see is, yeah, you know what? I'm not even going to go there. Anyway, our next radio play comes from the anthology program Escape. Now, this series delved more into the supernatural and science fiction realm rather than horror. It ran from July 7th. 1947 to September 25th, 1954 on CBS. Throughout most of its run, it was hosted by William Conrad, who many of you may remember from the TV shows Cannon and Jake and the Fat Man. And in later years, he was replaced by actor-comedian Paul Fries, who was known 
as a man of a thousand voices. Like many radio programs, Escape was adapted to television in 1950, but was canceled after a few months. Tonight's play, Three Skeleton Key, was adapted from the short story written by French writer George, I hope I pronounce this right, Todos, and was first broadcasted on November 15th, 1949. So again, sit back, turn down the lights, and let's listen to Three Skeleton Key. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape! Escape! Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence. As George Todos describes it in his hair-raising tale, Three Skeleton Key. Picture this place. A gray, tapering cylinder, welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare, black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the light, rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water. Gray-green, scum-dappled, warm as soup and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-o'-war, and, yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this wasn't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went. And up. Yes, up and up. And round and round. Past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, cases of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds, and cartons and cans. And up and up and up. Round and round. Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom. And over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room. And over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty. Balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. At night, you'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with the light revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. It wouldn't be bad. 
The other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind. And it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste, what a pair. Louis, he was head man. Was a big fellow from the Basque country. Black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that, I tell you, those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was. And what word he let go was law. Silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation, the most I could ever get out of him was... Uh, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they'd send me somebody that was who would Louis. Keep and when he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down because August was the talkingest man I've ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in they Paris. Over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous, horrible. The way we used to scare the audience, I, I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand, yes, gave it up completely. I really did. I couldn't. It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers and the big yellow stars, when, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched, far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. Master, a big one, about a half mile off, and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled down. glasses out now. I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. Why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with a glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Uh, oh, can't you see us? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. The square heads. What is it? What is it? Watch. North, northwest. Ah. I know. I know what it is. What? The Dutchman. The Flying Dutchman. We did a play about her. What? Oh, what a performance. You ghastly galleon. Hag-ridden, curse-driven. Must oh, on... shut up, will you? Yeah, she's laughing. Yes. It's a sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. Crew left her for some reason or another. But instead of sinking, she's gone on, running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with his reefs to break her up. A beautiful ship. 
Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. But as we waited for the crash, she left again, caught some odd gust and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, heeling and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief. She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? Yeah, this is impossible. Absolutely impossible. What? Here, take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. What is it, Jerk? I had to focus. And then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no men. I don't know. An inestimable number of tremendous rats. See them? Yes. I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing? Here, give me a look. Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look, chatterbox. Give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes. If she's going to turn, she'd better turn soon. Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's low tide. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, where's all the conversation, August? Huh? Here, you want the glasses again? You want another look? No. No. She's still coming on. Go away! Go away! Turn, will you? Turn, I say! I pray you turn. Cracked up. The rats. Look, on the water, like a carpet. They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship's rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below, it's open. Well, well come on. And down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared? You bet we were scared. August! You get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Right, Chief. But hurry. Hurry. Look. You see them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at them. Millions. Yeah, they smell us. Here they come. Oh, close the door. I can't. Stop. Here, let me. Move, you. Hey. Yeah. Made it. Holy heavens, close. Uh, one got in. Look, there. Well, get him. Watch it. Kick him. What a brute. He was as big as a tomcat. Bigger. And his eyes were wild and red. His teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us, starving ravenous. And we fought him. Fought that one rat all over the room. It was... Oh, believe me, I don't exaggerate. It was like fighting a panther. Uh, yeah, I got it. Uh, we'd better get aloft. Yeah. As 
we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels, and at every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louis, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them. Oh, you look at them. It's a nightmare. Will you look at them? The air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass, all about us. We couldn't see the sky, nothing, nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling, hairy snouts, and their teeth. The bats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three, we stood very quietly. Oh, very, very quietly. In the center of the glass room. Under our beautiful light. And we waited. What can we do? What can we do, Keith? Take it easy. Take it easy. I, I, I can't. I just can't. Won't do any good. To, it won't do any good to stand here and shake. That's right. Go away. Go away, do you hear me? Go away, Mr. They won't go away. Not until... Felicity! Not until... What? Not until they've been fed. You can take just so much horror, and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us and they could rush at us. But that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there. Swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. Only it had drowned some of them. Ship's rats don't drown. <laughs> no, sir. You can't drown one of them. <laughs> They're all climbing up the tower. This bunch around us is getting thicker. Uh, say, what's the time? Quarter of six. You've got first watch, Sean. Right. Wake me at ten. I will. Come along, August. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. Sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamp. It caught them, lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. And then I started the rotary motor. The light drove them mad. As she swung slowly and smoothly about, she blinded them in the fierce, stabbing bar of light, moving continually about, ever turning, ever touching, ever moving around and around. And they, twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light, the bright light moving. And behind, on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back. But you can't help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you couldn't see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light, 
blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. And when I came up into the gallery early the next morning, there stood Auguste, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms and making a speech. Dear, dear audience, I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Prelati, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of Marichal into the nether I stood staring at him, horror-struck. <laughs> but he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving no one out. August! August! Another one, Lolita. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. Stop it, stop it. Zimere, the bloodstained monster, was my partner in iniquity. He went on, bowing and scraping to the rats, his big blue eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arms and cracked his face. He looked at me like a child, and then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below. Go on. Oh, very well, then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today. Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louis and me teasing the rats. Yes, sounds horrible. It was fun. We would get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away, trying to get at our eyes. Louis was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall the hundred and ten feet to the surf below. Look at the sharks. They're eating them. Those sharks are our friends. Ah. Here, here, I'll get another bunch together. <laughs> here, my beauties. Ah, that's it. File up. Kill each other, huh? <laughs> ah, there they go. Auguste joined in, too. Very ingenious, Auguste. He learned that if he spread eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats! It went on all day. And then... I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. I couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp, and went to the window. Even as I looked out, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, come quick! What? What is it? They found a way in! I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy, and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy bodies thudding against the other side as the window gave way. There! That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. But what was that? I don't know. Came from below. 
the storeroom window. Uh, they're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Hey. Right. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung, and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louis with the other. It had ripped his hand open and the blood was pouring out. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. Oh, my hands! He got my hands! That's both of them, Louis. I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it, my blood! I bleed! Don't worry about it, Louis. Please. Here. I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. There. There, that's not bad. Just the flesh. And then I became conscious of a new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood. And even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling, whiskery nose showed through. Louis! You've got to go up! The next level was the living quarters and kitchen. I slammed the trap there, but it too was wood. Oh, my blood. What are we going to do? I don't know. They'll be through this one in a minute. To the gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. We made it. We lay across the trap door, exhausted, while below us the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather, and all about us. The others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off, and so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting... And the hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. Would you like to come in, my beauties? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in, you know. August was standing by the glass, and in one hand he held a big wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet. Slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is tap just a little harder and... Uh, uh. I found a coil of wire in the toolkit, and I trussed him up, fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side, looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was... A lunatic and a coward for company. And all about, watching our little drama, the rats. The day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. And we had only one way of summoning them. 
That was to shoot off distress rockets. But the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay thirst-tormented, starving, waiting. And the following night, I again tended the light. But the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted. And quite suddenly, at about midnight, the light went out. There was nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. And when I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about. Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then... The rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights came softly and innocently towards us. Our light was out. They didn't know. I... I wanted to open the windows, to call out to them, to warn them somehow. But I was afraid. What if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited... She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger, crewman, off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. The sun came up, and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. August, insane asylum. He never recovered. And Louis? They took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Yes, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. <laughs> no, no, mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse. I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. 
But sometimes, when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous. Sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight we have presented Three Skeleton Key by George Tudus, adapted for radio by James Poe. Featured in the cast were Elliot Reed as Jean, Bill Conrad as Louis, and Harry Bartell as Auguste. Special music was arranged and conducted by Adele Castillo. Next week... You are standing on the deck of a ship headed on an illegal mission to Central America... Before you, holding a gun in your stomach, is a desperate man who has just given you the choice between being killed or becoming a murderer yourself. Next week, we escape with John and Gwen Bagney's exciting tale of a murderous trio of gunrunners in Central America, Maracas. Goodbye, then, until the same time next week, when once again we offer you... Escape. Stay tuned now for Life with Luigi, which follows over most of these CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, that's our show for tonight. I want to thank everybody for listening. And remember, if you want to follow me on Facebook, it is facebook.com slash terror 1970 or you can follow me also on instagram at radio show nerd this is keith the radio show nerd signing off and i will see you all next week